Battersea Park is my favourite park in London and it's actually really hard in London I think to get properly immersed in a green space so I love this one because there's a little path that goes around the edge and you can just go and you're completely surrounded by trees and you just feel like you're kind of in nature um, and there's enough space you know where you can sit on your own you're not necessarily near people it's just got a really nice vibe like we're just by the pagoda now yeah i just love it here and just by the river as well just we've got you've got all your nature <laughs> that you need in one place because it is really hard and a lot of people in london don't have gardens or things like that so actually these spaces are really sacred i'd say to living here and sometimes i just need to come and like, immerse myself in the greenery and this is a really nice place to do it especially in the summer it's really really beautiful and what is this little tinkling noise that we can ah, hear? So, <laughs> so I've got with me my chair pack, I like to call it. So that's actually a yak bell all the way from the Himalayas in Sikkim. Um, so this is what I made for my first Women with Altitude trip about five years ago now. It's quite a while ago. And basically what happened was I, I didn't realise how much vintage backpacks cost. So when I was looking for a backpack from 1910, um, it was like at the end when I'd organised the whole trip and I just didn't realise there were thousands of pounds. So I basically just made my own out of an old chair. <laughs> so this is what it is. And it looks really like the old ones. I mean, it definitely looks like a chair, but it also definitely looks like the old ones. And it's the same material. And this became quite a famous little object, actually. Well, I think when you were cycling to this park today and people were seeing that on your back, that must have been quite an eye-opening moment for them. Yeah, I was just stopping at the traffic lights with the yak bell. I was like, don't worry about that. <laughs> I was like, it's a prop from a film. <laughs> yeah. She hasn't had an outing in a while, so she's happy to be out. Hello, I'm Liv Bolton, and you're listening to The Outdoors Fix, a podcast to inspire you to make the outdoors a bigger part of your life. In this episode, we're in Battersea Park in London, where I went for a walk and chatted with Elise Wordley. Elise travels all around the world, following in the footsteps of intrepid female explorers of the past for her Women with Altitude project. Her fascination with these women has taken her to the Himalayas, dressed in a yak coat and wooden backpack, to Iran, trekking with a mule in a 1930s Burberry Mac, and to the Scottish Highlands wearing a 1940s cotton skirt and hobnail boots. More recently, Elise spent 32 days surviving on her own in the Canadian wilderness for Channel 4's TV series, Alone. Walking with Elise, I wanted to find out what was behind all of her outdoors adventures, how she balances it with her full-time PR job, and what it took to survive for weeks in a forest in Canada's Northwest Territories. But before we get to Elisa's story, I want to say thank you so much to all of you who have listened to the first episode of Series 8 with Carla Corey, who's one of only two black female mountain leaders in the UK. It's been so fantastic to read your messages and hear your feedback. If you enjoyed the episode, could I ask you to subscribe or write a review on Apple Podcasts about it? Or how about telling your family and friends about the Outdoors Fix podcast? Thank you so much. I also want to say thank you to the outdoor footwear company Merrill for kindly supporting this series. Their backing makes this podcast possible and they always allow me the freedom to find the people and stories I think are important to showcase. I also spent the summer in their Merrill Women's Speed Eco waterproof hiking shoes and they are seriously comfortable. 
Merrill have kindly offered listeners of The Outdoors Fix a 20% off discount on their products at merrill.co.uk. So just head to their website and use the code OUTDOORS20, which is valid on one product per person until the 31st of December 2023. Anyway, back to Elise. Don't miss her bushcraft survival tips at the end of the episode, as well as a minute of the sounds of nature for a little bit of escapism in your busy day. So here's Elise. Lise, hello, thank you for coming on the Outdoor Fix podcast. Oh no, thanks so much for having me. We are in London, but can you tell listeners whereabouts we are and where we're sitting right now? So we're in Battersea Park and it's a beautiful sunny day and we're sat under a giant old plane tree that looks really, really ancient. Um, in the middle of the park. You can tell it's London, can't you, from the planes? Yeah, yeah I mean, <laughs> <laughs> just looks at your side as another very big plane I know. In. What is nice about London and these spaces that, you know, you can kind of zone out the planes a little bit, can't you? And yeah, absolutely, and that's why I come here, really. So with this park, there's always somewhere that you can find that can be your own little bit of green. There's so many plants, there's so many little places you can sit and just be in nature, which is quite rare in London. So it's always quite busy in here because I think everyone's trying to do the same thing, you know, just trying to get a bit of greenery, a bit of fresh air. Um, but yeah, I love it here. And it's only a 15 minute cycle from your house. Is yeah, that right? so it's really close yeah. and it's huge and you can walk, have a really good walk here, a really good run around the edge. That's what I tend to do on the little paths where you're sort of completely surrounded by trees and I just pretend that I'm in some sort of ancient forest as I run. So Lise, you in your day job are a PR executive but you're also an adventurer who's fascinated with female explorers from the past and that curiosity has taken you all over the world following their footsteps on expeditions. Can you just list for the listeners, we'll go through it quite briefly at the start, but where you've been in the world following these women and who you followed? Yeah, so I first went to India, to Sikkim in the Himalaya, um, which is this little bit of India right at the top, this very special sort of mountain kingdom. So I went there following in the footsteps of Alexandra David Neal. And then after I did that trip, it opened up a whole world of who are these women? I need to find more of them. And I found so many. Oh, it's a little doggy. Hello, doggy. <laughs> Hello mate. <laughs> and then, so the next one, I went to Scotland and I followed in the footsteps of Nan Shepherd, who's this nature writer and explorer of the Cairngorms. And then I went to Iran and followed in the footsteps of Freya Stark. So we went to the Valleys of the Assassins, which is this really remote, beautiful valley in the middle of the Alborz Mountains. It's this really special, special place. And then I also went back to Scotland and followed in the footsteps of Jane Clark, who was one of the first women to climb a lot of the bigger peaks in, in Scotland. So she was really formidable, this incredible woman who actually created the Scottish Women's Climbing Club in 1908 because she wasn't allowed in the men's. So she just went, oh, wow, I'll just, I'll just make my own club. And it's still going today. So yeah, there's so many women and there's lots more plans to do more. Well, it's really exciting. And the, the thing that I need to say, obviously, is that you do it in the clothing and you use the equipment that these women from the past used. Yeah, so I do it in the old clothing, really, just so I can fully understand what they went through and just to sort of show, you know, these women were so overlooked and not only did they have everything to contend with with being a woman back in the 18, 1900s, but they also did it in really quite extreme clothing. 
the other part of your life which we need to talk about is that last year you spent a number of weeks in the Canadian wilderness which is now being shown on TV as Channel 4's Alone series. Yeah. Incredible. <laughs> and it was crazy. I can't believe that you, and it was full on survival. Yeah, so that all came about actually because they found me on my Instagram. So all these trips that I've done actually led to that. And it was, the, I couldn't say no. You know, when they asked me to be on the show, I just wanted to become a wild woman. I just wanted to become fully immersed in nature. And that was my chance. And yeah, I just couldn't say no when they told me what it was about. So off I went to the Canadian wilderness. Northwest Territories, wasn't it? Yeah, Northwest Territories, sort of along the Mackenzie River. And we were dropped in our own little space. Um, we couldn't go more than five kilometers. And yeah, we just had to survive. And it was completely nuts. But the, one of the best things I've ever done. It was incredible. And you had to obviously build your own shelter, find your own food. You had to film yourself, didn't you? Yeah, we had to do all of that. And I'd actually, I mean, I've done a lot of adventures, but I've never done any bushcraft. I've never built a shelter. I'd never used an axe or one of these silky saws, you know, those big saws that, yeah, didn't even know what they were. Never used a fire for flint. So I had three weeks to learn everything. And yeah, I just crammed it all in and then they just dropped me off and I just had to catch my own feet. I had to go fishing for the first time in my life um, and I've been veggie for the last 15 years but you know I was really happy to do it because it was the most sustainable way to live as often, which is what I wanted to try. I wanted to try and live how a lot of people around the world still do but also how people used to live obviously because I'm really interested in history and how people used to survive and live so yeah it was it was incredible really crazy. I want to get in all the details of both these sides of your adventures in a second but I'd like to go back a bit and find out where this all came from. So when you were younger were you outdoorsy I mean you know how was your childhood were you out exploring or was it different to that? Yeah, so I was born in London, but my parents actually moved to Essex in the countryside when I was about three. And my whole childhood was spent outside. Like, I just remember digging holes with my brother. Like, we had a big garden and we just build like dens and worm houses, just always, always outside. Um, we, we didn't really watch well, I think my mum would probably say otherwise, but I don't remember watching too much telly, you know, we were always sort of out doing wild things. So I think that's where it came from. And then as I sort of got older and I moved to London, I lost all that, sort of I went to uni. Even during school, I sort of just hung out with my mates in Colchester. I didn't, I wasn't really interested in the outdoors as much. Um, and yeah, and then I think when I came to London, I I'd sort of got all these really bad panic attacks and really bad anxiety, and I'm still sort of struggling with that now, 10 years later, but I found that being outside really, really helped that, which is why I sort of crave these green spaces like this one. So just going back to that in your 20s, having this anxiety, how did it manifest itself for you? So it was really strange. So just one day, I was in a lecture actually, I went to uni and did art. Um, and just all of a sudden, I just got really, really hot. Um, everything started spinning. I didn't know what was happening. I thought I was gonna die and I just had to get out of this room. So I left everything behind and I just ran. And interestingly, I just had to be in an open green space. So I just ran through the streets of Reading, like trying to find a green space and eventually found a little park and I kind of calmed down. 
Um, but after that first one, it just kept happening constantly, just every day that would happen. Um, and just really awful sort of things like my legs would shake, I wouldn't be able to think straight. I'd constantly feel like my heart was going. I, the best way I describe it is if you're being mugged at knife point and your whole body goes into flight mode. So your pupils dilate, you're very alert. Um, you've got this horrible feeling like butterflies. That's how it felt for me, but all the time. And that's what basically is general anxiety disorder. They call it GAD. So you have that constantly. So you can't sleep, you can't concentrate because you're constantly sort of so yeah, so the only way I managed to get myself out of that was to go on medication. Um, and that's something I've sort of been exploring and on for since I was 20, so actually like nearly 13 years now. Um, so yeah, so that's kind of how that all manifested itself. Um, but slowly over the years, and this, my Women with Altitude project has really, really helped this, but I've built up my confidence again and I'm feeling sort of how I was I don't know how I was before because it was such, you know, you're a teenager, I guess, before you're 20, you have these crazy hormones. So I guess I'm still finding myself because I'm not sure who I was then and I'm, I feel yeah. better now. What a, um, what a horrible thing to have to go through initially. It's good that you found a way of mm. managing it at the moment. Yeah. You said you ran to this green space and green spaces were the only way that, apart from medication, obviously, um, that you found this sort of slightly helped. You started doing some walking. Tell me about those first initial walks and how they helped you. Yeah, so I'd just sort of find green spaces and walk around and when I had, I think because I would be away from people and I found, you know, if I was on the tube or if I was in a, a group of people, like in a lecture or something like that, I'd just panic. So I think when you, you can walk, you can be on your own and you can be inside your own head and you can work things out quite slowly. And that's how the sort of, trying to get into green and just yeah the walking came about and I actually learned to sort of love walking and I find it really meditative you know and I think a lot of people do even Nan Shepherd when she wrote about walking in the Cairngorms even back then you know people needed it to have this sort of meditative experience and it's just time you can spend in your own brain and work things out with time and you're not rushed and so I think that's where the love of it came and obviously my childhood as well I found like all that was coming back and the joy that I used to get from being outdoors um, and I feel that a lot now I feel a little bit like a child when I'm sort of out under this I'm like oh it's so lovely and yeah I think a lot of us feel like that definitely yeah. it kind of brings out that it feels safe doesn't it it feels it harks back to when we were younger yeah it's a really interesting point yeah. you said there um, so those walks have led to these expeditions that I referenced at the start but where did this idea come from that you would go to India and follow Alexandra David Neal, who was an explorer back in the early start of the 20th century? Yeah. Where did that idea come from? So I read her book, which you've actually brought with you today. Um, it's called My Journey to Laza. And I read that when I was 16. And I remember at the time, I was thinking like, this is crazy. This is completely nuts that she just went for 14 years off just back then when women were supposed to stay at home and she just slept on mountain paths. She, she actually lived in a cave for nearly two years just studying Buddhism, trying to learn to meditate. Like she, she was the first Western woman to meet the Dalai Lama. She learned Tibetan. She was really, really amazing and I just couldn't really understand why I'd never heard of her or why she wasn't on like money or why I haven't learned about her at school. So. I just always had her in my head and then 
yeah, all those years, actually when I was suffering from anxiety really badly and I had a bit where I couldn't really go to work or leave the house and I reread the book and I remember it was just her sort of bravery and I thought, well, if she can do that then, you know, if she can go to a place on a boat and she hasn't even really seen a photo of where she's going, that is so brave. And I just sort of tried to channel that bravery a bit into my everyday life. And then I had the idea that, I mean, because her book had affected my life so much, um, I had the idea to just follow in her footsteps, kind of to raise her profile and to show people that this woman existed. Um, so it all sort of started from there. And then I obviously thought, well, I'll do it in the old equipment because I want to know how she would have felt, you know, when she was on top of that mountain pass and the snow was falling and she was freezing. Like, I would never feel that in sort of North Face top or puffy jacket, you yeah. know? So that's why I did it in the old stuff and that's how it all came about and then yeah I did that trip and it's all sort of taken off from there yeah well going into the details of of that one and then we'll talk about some of the others but for that one then how did you find all the equipment and then also how did you were you did you just take off a chunk of time from work and you know how did you manage to know where you were going because you only had an old map and compass yeah so I actually worked at a travel company at the time so I had quite a lot of holiday left so I had a month and they let me take it off and they actually gave me some money towards the trip which was amazing and then I paid the other half myself so that's how I worked out in that sense but it opened my eyes that finding old equipment is completely a weird world <laughs> so <laughs> if you want anything after 1940 it's fine because people are kind of into that era yeah. so 1940 was wartime and lots of people still reenact that they have a lot of the so when I did the Nan Shepherd trip that stuff was a lot easier to find but when you go sort of 1800s to you can't necessarily find this stuff so um, it's a lot of piecing together what they mention in the books, what they were wearing, what people actually had at the time. So you end up going down these rabbit holes of what bras did women wear in 1908? And you get all these amazing results and it's quite fascinating reading it all. But yeah, so a lot of it is just picking together. And if you can't find the actual thing that they would have had, then recreating something like the chair pack behind us in the same materials. So I keep it as authentic as possible. But one difficult bit is that these women were already struggling to be taken seriously as explorers and writers and um, so they don't mention in the book sort of really what they were wearing or if they were struggling or if their undergarments were itching them or you know that sort of thing so you then have to go to their letters where they're a lot more personal especially if they're writing to women sort of in their life they'll say how they were really feeling or you know what they were actually wearing it kind of comes out a bit more so it's a lot of investigating well you're a historian in yes. a way aren't you? <laughs> Primary like sources. I'm an accidental adventurer and an accidental historian yes. yeah so it's it's fascinating like even little snippets of so I was googling where the first tampons came from and it was actually in ancient Egypt they created this sort of stick with cotton on and that was the first I know and you just wouldn't think that people were doing it back then like that um, so yeah, all these amazing things I've found out. Absolutely. So just really quickly, what were you wearing in when you went to India? Um, what was yeah, what was Alexandra wearing at the time? So she had a yakwal coat, which I actually got my friend who lives in India to pick up in the mountains because she said, oh, they actually have loads of these in the shops in Leh, which is this little mountain yeah. town in the Himalayas. So she got me this really old, incredible, bright purple. I didn't realise it was purple <laughs> till I got there. I thought it would be grey. Um, this yakwal coat and then 
I had traditional boots, like Himalayan boots that she wore when she had that when she went there, and then just the undergarments that people had at the time. So it was like a cotton dress, and then sort of woolen, woolen sort of culotte things. Yeah. <laughs> yeah, I went full out, and then the bra and the pants as well. I went for 19, 1908 bra I found in a sort of vintage shop. <laughs> so, yeah, I went the full hog. Yeah. yeah. <laughs> so, was it freezing cold? I mean, you're up in the high mountains. I imagine that was it. Was it warm enough? It was absolutely freezing. Uh, the coldest I've ever been in my life. Oh, God. Um, so I ended up just sleeping next to the fire every night. Um, the day was fine because the sun would come out, and then yeah, it was it was fine in the mornings, and then. Because you're really high, we went up to 5,000 meters for quite a bit of it. So obviously, then it just gets freezing at night. So yeah, I just slept by the fire um, every single night and just tried to sort of yeah stay warm. But the good thing is she had two hot water bottles, so actually I'd just put the kettle on the fire all night and then I'd just keep filling them up and then I'd fall asleep for a while and then I'd wake up absolutely freezing. So I just do the same again. Yeah. So there wasn't much sleep on that trip. You were under canvas or were you in tea houses? Um, a bit of both. So we stayed with people along the way and then we had we just set up camps. And to be honest, it, I would just sleep in the open, sort of next to the fire, So, which was really nice. And that was my first time actually properly sleeping in nature in that way. Um, I was going to ask so, you, yeah, how, so. how did that trip make you feel about the outdoors and nature? Yeah, I think that was the first time I'd connected to it in such an extreme way. Um, yeah, and I loved it. I loved that I stunk of smoke. I loved that I hadn't watched any telly. Because obviously on these trips, I don't have my phone. Yeah. I don't have any modern stuff. And I realised, you know, when you see an amazing view, how often we just go for the phone and we just take a picture, when actually I wasn't doing that. So I would just look at these mountains and I'd just take it in. And I remember things so much more vividly. A little bit like on a loan, I didn't really have anything to distract I mean I had the cameras but essentially that was it and I remember it all so vividly so that's one thing I've learned from my trips as well is to just when you're having a moment you're having an experience just leave the phone out of it and you can remember it a lot clearer definitely oh that's so interesting that you remember things more it was quite a long journey as well that one wasn't it how many kilometers did you cover do you know what? I can't remember the exact number but it's something like 200 um, but obviously this is like mountain paths yeah. in altitude so you go slow and they're really steep and up and down so but then after about seven days you kind of get used to it so your legs get used to it you build up the muscles that you need so we were fine sort of by the end um, but yeah it was really tough going because those mountain paths are are really sort of crumbly and steep. We could talk for hours about each trip, but I, I, I'm conscious that you've done you know, quite a few and I'm sure the listeners will want to hear a little bit more about some of the others as well. So the next one was in the Cairngorms with Nan Shepherd. And so can you describe who Nan Shepherd was and, and the inspiration for the trip? Yeah, so a lot of my inspiration I actually get from books. So Nan Shepherd wrote The Living Mountain, which is this amazing book about the Cairngorms, but it's also about mountains in general. And it was written at a time where it was 1940s, so it's a time when most of the books about mountains were written by men and they're about getting to the top and conquering them. But Nan's book was about how you shouldn't be doing that and you should be experiencing the mountain as a whole. Um, and it's written kind of like a philosophical text. It's not a normal book, it's quite small, it's quite short, more like an essay. 
Um, so at the time, it was rejected by the literary world. No one wanted to publish it. So she just chucked it in a drawer for 30 Crazy, years. She just chucked it in a drawer, thought, oh, no one wants to publish it. And then I think she was in her 70s when eventually it got published. And now today it's being republished and it's become this really celebrated book. And I think The Guardian described it as the best book ever written about nature and landscape in Britain or something like it's that. Magical. And it's really magical and it's the way she describes the rock and the water and the different elements and <clears throat> how they affect her body and yeah it's just beautiful so I thought I need to go and understand this more. So again I sort of dressed in clothes that she would have had in 1940. I only took with me what she had back then which was rations by the way oh, okay and yeah took the book and just walked around the Cairngorms for a month just visiting everywhere that she mentions in the book um, and with that trip I really found that the old clothing opened up so much more for me so I, I when she was talking about the rain like permeating her clothing and getting to her skin and but then she'd understand the rain, like why it was there, it had its purpose. And I was feeling all of those things because it was also on my skin, you know, and I could, when it wouldn't have been if I was in my waterproof stuff. So that trip was amazing for so many reasons, but mainly that one and just the time that I had there as well. Just, just endless time to just appreciate the nature I was in. Because you're not, you know, not with anybody. I mean, apart from you had a, um, a friend who was filming you sometimes, but you know, you're on your own and you've got no distractions. Yeah, it, it's, it's the first time I actually, because at, at first that's really hard. So at night I'd make my food and then I'd just sit there and be like, oh, I've got nothing to do now. And it was really uncomfortable. And I'd be like, oh, I need to do something. I need to, I don't know, I'll chop a bit of wood or something. I don't know. But then towards the end, I just, I was just sitting there like, this is nice got nothing to do and then as the sun went down I'd just go to bed and then as the sun would come up I'd, I'd wake up and it just became this really beautiful sort of synergy with the nature I was in um, so yeah that trip was that was incredible. Did you see any wildlife when you were there? What did you spot? Did you spot anything out there? There were some deer um, and then those famous white grouse that apparently are quite rare there I don't what they're called <laughs> ptarmigans yeah maybe that's yeah i think that's it um so i saw some of them um eagles that sort of thing but yeah and just like appreciating the plants as well and the sounds and the different things yeah it was really quite an amazing immersive experience and that was the first time i'd actually been on my own because on the india trip i had a whole group of women with me so like the guides and um Porters who help carry our stuff and that sort of thing. But this was my first time properly alone, um, which at first was really scary. I'd never camped on my own and I had this old little canvas tent that I'd put up. I didn't know who else would be around, but again, after a couple of days, you just get used to it and it becomes this really wonderful thing. And of course, because you're thinking about, um, you're, you're doing it in the old style with a map and compass and you're not doing a tracker or anything I suppose you don't really know exactly all the places that you went to in that month do you I mean I wrote them all down <laughs> I don't know if I can remember them off the top of my head but I mainly just went to where she went in the books so there's the pools of D look I always say this wrong I say Avon but it's Aon or something is it? Um, all the different locks she describes um, the different towns and yeah and it was quite nice to just lose myself I didn't really have anywhere to be on a certain day um, which again is a really nice contrast to my life in London, which is kind of hectic and busy and it's just lovely and yeah, it's always quite hard to come back to that after your mind's been so at peace.
Absolutely. Yeah. And I want to ask about that later on when we talk about alone because I, I do want to hear about that contrast. You went to Iran as well last year. And that must have been quite an extraordinary experience. I know that subsequently we've had all the protests in Iran with the women's rights. But just briefly, just describe what, you know, what the route was and, and who you were with in Iran. Yeah, so that was following the footsteps of Freya Stark, who's one of my favourite female adventurers. And it's really because she travelled in this incredible way where she really immersed herself in you know, the places she visited. She stayed for years at times. She'd become part of families. and. Yeah, she just travelled in this incredible way and her book, The Valley of the Assassins, is really quite amazing. She was the first Western person to map that area for the Royal Geographical Society, um, which is kind of why she went there. But she also went to find out the secrets of the assassins. So they're this ancient group who lived in this part of the Alborz Mountains in this valley in like the 11th century, I think it was, so thousands of years ago but they were really formidable fighters and their sort of legend has lived on through history. Like even today, it's really entwined in our lives. So like the video game, Assassin's Creed, they're in programs, they're, they're still sort of a big part of the world. Um, but back in 19, 1920s when Freya went, you know, people were still learning about them and finding out all about them. So she went to also find their castles. So. They had castles all along this valley so they could look out for like Mongol invaders. And they were really famous because they managed to keep this bit of land for so long. So that's why she went there and then she wrote her book, The Valleys of the Assassins, which then I read. And I was just, just the way she described the place, um, this remote, beautiful, untouched, yeah, just oasis it sounded like and the people she met along the way and I just thought oh, I've got to go <laughs> I've got to go and, and do this it, and was it like she'd written or it, is it was changed exactly it felt exactly the same um, it was really interesting because we did the same so we stayed with families all along the valley and it was interesting hearing their stories and in my head I'd always think that places would get bigger over time but actually a lot of the villages had got smaller because the younger people were going to the cities to work they didn't want to live the rural lives anymore so it was sad in that sense um, but I mean it's just the most incredible place just vast mountains like brown rock with white peaks and then this lush valley floor which is actually now full of like rice paddies and yeah, just people going about this sort of, I mean, there's not many people there, but you, know, you get the odd sort of rice farmer in the field and it was incredible. And actually going to Iran was, was incredible. Um, it's yeah. not a place that many of us go to at all. No, so, and before yeah. I went, I, I mean, I've worked in like adventure travel for a long time. So I'd known a lot of people that had gone and um, I knew it was possible. And that actually, you know, once you're there, it's, it's Iranians are the most beautiful, kind, wonderful people. But there's a lot of, you know, in the West, we're served a certain narrative and a lot of it is true, but there's also this feeling amongst people that it's not, it's dangerous and it's not a good place to go. And I got a lot of that before I went. The only main thing I was worried about was landing with a lot of filming equipment and little mics and potentially looking a bit like journalists, but it was all fine. We were welcomed in and yeah, I've never felt so welcome anywhere. Um, it was really quite amazing. Obviously, it's got its problems, and you could see that towards the end. I could feel these things, and um, but yeah, we met the most amazing people. Our guide Nadia was was wonderful, and yeah, and I just hope that everything sort of works out for the Iranian people. How did the outdoors there make you feel? I mean, it's obviously an incredibly different landscape. 
Yeah, and I'm always, I will say, like, I'm really nervous before I go on these trips. I, I sound quite cool and calm, but inside, quite often, I'm not. And that one, I mean, when the plane was landing, I was, yeah, I was really, really nervous. And, I, and we went into Tehran and it's this bustling, hot, smoggy, not my sort of, you know, it's, it's really quite overwhelming. And I was, you know, I was shaking the whole time, feeling really panicky. Um, but as soon as I got out of there and I was in the Alborz Mountains and we started our walking, I just feel great. And I, even though I'm in the old stuff and like the hobnail boots are giving me blisters and everything's hurting and a lot of me is thinking, oh, I wish I was just in comfy stuff. <laughs> but, you know, it's, I'm fully immersed and I'm there. And yeah, we had a mule for that one as well. She was amazing. She had no name, so I just called her Starkey. Um, and she was there and she was like this really comforting presence. Yes. Um, I didn't even put any stuff on her because I felt bad. So we just had a, just came along for the I had a meal, so I felt like I had to just borrowed it off some guy at the beginning of the valley. Um, but yeah, that trip was really eye opening. Yeah, wow. amazing. These are incredible experiences having come from you reading a book when you were younger yeah. and uh, huge adventures. But I mean, alone was a whole nother level i yeah. think because you're you're surviving by yourself so can so we could go into a bit more detail about that why why did you properly want to go and do it because it's incredibly intimidating to just yeah. be dropped off it was really intimidating as well because obviously i organize all my own trips yeah. usually i know exactly what's happening on what day i'm completely in control so this was the first time i'd gone on an adventure and i had no idea what would happen so it was really intimidating in that sense. And yeah, I hadn't got any experience in that world, but it did sort of turn out that things like sleeping around a fire in the Himalayas for a month had hardened me to this experience. And although I didn't have the bushcraft experience, I had this sort of mental attitude where I also wanted to be in the nature. And, I, and yeah, I think that's really why I did it. I just wanted to become immersed in nature I wanted to become a wild woman um, and it was a way to do that where you know you always had the safety team 40 minutes away um, you were looked after but again you were you know you were left <laughs> it was really scary um, but I just wanted to try and live sustainably and I wanted to I guess I just wanted to become a little woodland creature I wanted to fully be in nature just to see what that would feel like yeah, and I mean, how I'd be that the opportunities to do that nowadays are so few so what an incredible opportunity yeah and that was it as well you know as the world changes and I had this opportunity to go to this it's probably one of the last great wildernesses on earth and I just I just couldn't say no I just had to go and be in that forest so you took time off from work and you didn't know really how long you were going to be away for. No. You did manage to last a number of weeks, which is incredible, surviving by yourself. Can you explain, you had a number of items that you were allowed to take with you. Can you go through and list what you took with you? Yeah, so you get this, they give you a list, there's like 40 items on there, but you can only choose 10. And it's done in a way where you can only choose one or two items from each section. Right. So basically, what you choose, you're sacrificing something else. So they had all sorts on there. There was like bow and arrow to different kinds of rope, tarpaulin, <clears throat> um, like toothbrush, toothpaste. And I didn't know anything about bushcraft, but it, it turns out there's a lot of things on there like 
dental floss and I'd be like why would I take dental floss but it turns out it's really really tough you can use it to fish you can do so I was there trying to work out all these things um, and there are things like salt and I'm like oh why do I need that but it turns out if you go for months without salt you get really really bad cramps and it's actually really hard to find salt in the wild um, it's also good to preserve food if you're lucky enough to catch a lot of fish you can preserve that with the salt so I was learning all this stuff you know why these things are on the list and it took me like weeks to sort of finally decide what I wanted to take oh so you'd been given the um, list weeks in advance and we then had to oh. choose what we wanted yeah. um, so I ended up just kind of keeping it simple I mean a sleeping bag was on there yeah and although I've obviously not had a sling bag on my trips, I knew that if I was there for a while, those temperatures were going down to like yeah. minus 20 at night. So there was no way I was not taking the sleeping bag. And then I had things like a pot because you have to boil the water to drink. I mean, you can drink it straight out of the river, but you risk getting ill and then you're out. So you have to have the pot. You have to have the ferro rod, unless you're amazing at fires with, you know, when people just use a bit of stick to make a fire which I can't do so there's things you have to have and then there was sort of fishing line fishing hooks a hunting bow snare wire so all that kind of thing and I had to choose between which bits I wanted to take so I think I chose well in the end for my ability like I'd have never been able to use a bow and arrow and I never wanted to hunt the big game anyway I just wanted the fish so yeah goodness so so you'd had a bit of training beforehand before you were dropped off in the wilderness is that right yeah so we had nine days well it was mainly camera training i will say <laughs> because they suddenly freaked out that we were filming ourselves so what i thought would be you know how to build a shelter how to do it actually turned out to not quite be that so i was there on youtube yeah. just like trying to, and all the other contestants actually really helped me so they showed me how to tie a fishing hook to fishing line because you can't just use any knot it's got to be a very specific knot. Wow. I didn't know that. No. Um, so they were all really helping me and I learned a lot in those nine days actually from them. But yeah, we had like how to humanely kill things, what to do if a bear comes, um, that sort of thing, all that training, what to do if you cut yourself like a main artery, God, yeah. that sort of thing. Um, so we had all that. So I felt pretty prepared when I went in. I was going to say the big thing, <laughs> that sure. was, the, the big thing I was going to say is that there's bears and wolves. How are you feeling when you dropped off about that? Weirdly fine. It was the first day you'd hear a noise and you'd be like, oh, is it a bear? But you have your bear spray and your bear horn and generally they will run away if they hear that. So I just kept thinking that. And then after a few days, you realize that those noises are actually just squirrels. And I don't know, like the bears were there, but mine luckily were quite scared because they're not really used to it. They hate smoke. So I just always had fire. Yeah always bashed my pot, made loads of noise, and I saw them, but they were never, you know, like a metre away from me. I know some other people had them around their camp a lot, wow. which I luckily didn't. Um, but yeah, it was scary knowing they were there, but eventually you just, you know, you just get used to it. And I had this really amazing experience with the wolves where I never saw them. They're very elusive, quite rare. and. Um, it was one of the first nights, the northern lights were out, the moon was huge, and I just heard this, oh, oh, like this wolf, and I was like, wow. <laughs> it was like this amazing, crazy moment. Um, yeah, so the wolves were fine. They didn't bother me much, but you could see their footprints along the sort of riverbank. Wow. And you'd know they'd been there, but I don't think they were that interested in me. 
So the idea was that you'd have to last as long as you could in the in the wilderness, and then obviously you would, if you then decided that you had to leave, they would come and get you. But it's yeah. it's who can last the longest. Yeah. But how did you feel when you were out there? Because you kind of referenced it then, like you got to see the northern lights, you got to hear the wolves. It's weeks on your own. How how did things feel to you? Yeah, and I say this in the program actually as well, but I really felt things out there. I think because I've been on medication for such a long time, sometimes I wonder like, if I do really feel things, like I hardly ever cry and I, I just not, I don't have a huge amount of emotions, but out there, everything felt so real and so fresh. And I think because I had a lot of time in my own mind, you know, you've only got yourself to talk to, you've only got yourself to cheer yourself on. And I did manage to stay quite positive, you know, if I was trying to, fish and it just wasn't working I'd be like oh well you don't know what you're doing so just try again tomorrow and I managed to stay in that quite positive mindset for a lot of it until you get really hungry <laughs> and then you do very quickly kind of go into a bit of a hole but I was really good at getting myself out of that and yeah I just felt I was just really happy to be there and really grateful to be there for the whole time until the sort of very end where I had to go um, yeah I think it's just a lot of time in your own mind and you end up going to places that you don't usually because usually you'll distract yourself with your phone or whenever do you sit at home and just stare you know at, at a fire for six hours <laughs> you know I had a lot of time to be in my own head and I actually felt a lot of I don't know if the word empathy is the right but I felt kindness for myself that I'd never really felt before so usually I'm like, even with my Women Without You project, I've done these amazing trips, but it's not where I want it to be. And quite often I'll just beat myself up. Oh, you should be trying to get more funding. Why haven't you done this? Why haven't you done that? When actually I never look back and think, oh, I did that. Like, I should be really proud of that. And I've got a tendency to just do that in most areas of my life. And actually it was the first time I, I felt kind of proud of myself. And I felt like, yeah, I don't know. I was just really happy to be there. and found this side of myself that sort of was really kind and gentle and I've definitely kept that with me now you know I don't beat myself up all the time and that's a big helicopter it reminds it me of alone yeah <laughs> slight contrast to that experience yeah. but um that's amazing to hear that you felt that way and that you could actually last on your own for so long because I don't think yeah many of us will experience that and be able to see that yeah I mean don't get me wrong I missed meals it was I just thought yeah. missing talking to someone like we are now and just saying how is your day or are you enjoying your food <laughs> like you really miss because like humans are we like to be together and it's really unnatural to be on your own for that amount of time and you really miss yeah just the little things like looking into someone's eyes um just those tiny things that you really miss but apart from the obvious and the hunger it was a really beautiful experience for me and yeah, something I'll, I mean, yeah, I'll never ever lose, I think, what I got out there. It's amazing. And, and what about the wildlife? So, I mean, we can see it from the TV show, but for, for people who haven't seen it or, you know, we can't all tell what the trees were or what the berries you were eating. So what was the nature around you like? Describe it. Yeah, well, it was boreal forest, so it was just pine, a lot of pine, some birch trees, and then... There was just squirrels everywhere, grouse everywhere, which I just couldn't catch. <laughs> it's funny, as a vegetarian, I was staring at this grouse going, oh, you look so tasty. <laughs> um, there was obviously a lot of pike in the river. So th this river is 
it's incredible. It's really long. It flows all the way to the Arctic. Um, and the Dene who live in the area, you know, they've been living off that river for generations and generations. Um, and it's full of fish, huge pike, and yeah, home to some of the biggest pike in the world. And there is quite a funny scene where I catch a pike, um, and it's the smallest little tiddly <laughs> seen. And they were actually like afterwards, they were like, "We don't know how you caught one that small. Like they don't, they're not that small." <laughs> um, but yeah, so and just moss. The floor was covered in moss. I actually called my little area that I found Narnia. So it was just dappled sunlight coming through. I had my little shelter that I managed to build. Um, and yeah, and just sort of little chipmunks around as well, just making Chip. really funny noises um, that I'd never heard before. And it, there was funny noises that I, these animals, obviously I don't get here, and it took me time to work out what they were, but eventually I knew what they were. I knew what time they were gonna make the noise. I knew the paths they were taking. So you end up learning so much about sort of the wildlife around you, I knew. So there's a lot of things called bunch berries, which I've seen in the footage everyone had loads of and I was kind of counting on them but because I had so many grouse they eat the bunch berries so right. it was, I was kind of like racing against the grouse to try and find all these little red berries um, that you can eat they were really good and there should have been like wild wild blueberries um, and rose hips but because it hadn't rained very much that year they'd all dried up by the time I got there and I remember a couple of weeks in there was this one blueberry I saw on a on a plant and I just picked it out and oh my god it was like jam it was like the sweetest jam you've ever tasted but it was this one little thing and it was such a great moment but yeah it was quite hard because a lot of the berries that i thought i'd rely on weren't there um but yeah it was just this amazing forest beautiful and you said that the aim was to go and connect with nature and you talked just there about you knowing where the animals were going to be in their routine so did you really feel that then yeah and when I, I didn't realise how much this had happened, but they did say it would, but my hearing had got so much better, like more animalistic, my eyesight had got so much better. I'd become so in tune with it that actually when, when they did eventually pick me up, they put these headphones on me and I was like, what's this for? And they were like, you're gonna need them in the heli, like it's loud. And I was literally like a scared little mouse. <laughs> like, wow. Everything was so loud because I wasn't used to it, but also you're, your ears to try and know where the animals are or to hear out for bears they go to this other level so even when I got back to the hotel room afterwards I could hear this buzzing and I thought oh is that the fridge so I unplugged it and I was like oh it's still there and I realized it, I could just hear all electric like all the plugs I could hear my ears had gone to this other level of hearing so, and then I realized god yeah I was really quite immersed in that space I did really become wild which was my aim <laughs> but yeah it was yeah and I miss it it was sad as the days went on after I came out I was like oh it's slowly slipping slipping away that wildness I was going to ask you about this so when you finally had to leave and I won't do many spoilers for people who are gonna gonna watch it but it is a huge contrast to come back from that to then the hotel and then back to London, to London yeah. and just I've, we met a few months ago when we went to Love Her Wild Festival and we were both doing this forest bathing session yeah. and it meant that we were sort of lying on the floor and looking at the trees. And you said to me afterwards that it was the first time that you really felt like you were back in the forest in Canada. And that's the first time I'd been in a forest. And it just went away from it. And that's why I like places like this, because you do feel surrounded by the trees. 
Um, but yeah, I don't really have a forest near me. I mean, I had actually, after I saw you, I'd been to Dartmoor. So I went to Dartmoor a couple of months ago and that was amazing. And even just there, I found a little swimming spot and I was sat there and I was like, oh, I could just stay here. <laughs> I could just live here. And I really felt this urge to just stay. Obviously I have a full-time job, so I couldn't do it, but yeah, it was funny. And when you come out, there's not I mean there's the whole production crew there but you don't see many people and I stayed for a little bit of time and then they pop you on a plane and it's this tiny little airport in Yellowknife um, and there's not many people on that plane our flight back was like a Tuesday afternoon I think from Vancouver there weren't many people on that plane so all of a sudden we were just hit when you got out at Heathrow but and it was the eyes I was like there's so many eyes and just people and it just it was really overwhelming and then I got on the tube <laughs> I was like this is nuts so um, strange to have to adjust but to sadly after two days that's gone and you're just like oh it's normal again Th this is really interesting isn't it because because of the way that you can get back to London fairly quickly from a place like that it could just fade. I mean, yeah. how do you feel about that, though? Because you obviously went to connect with nature and you have come back to London and you're you know, working full time. How have you been since and, and thinking about reflecting on that experience? Yeah, I find it quite sad, actually, that I'm not in the wild anymore. But it's just life. You know, you have to, to have a job to pay the bills and I can't just go and live, and live off grid. But it's definitely made me want to maybe live somewhere more wild or by the sea or some somewhere where I can get into nature and like big spaces in nature like I'm really I, I surf and I love the sea as well and I also love the forest now so I constantly think about where could I live where I can do that and it's getting to the point I think where I will probably try and do that next year so it's definitely made me want to live more sort of in a greener or bluer space and I'm lucky enough to be able to save the money now I've got the job and move um, but that's why parks like this are so special because a lot of people can't move um, but at least they have this green space um, and that's why I come here a lot because it is it is really immersive like even now we're under this tree and I'm thinking a lot about the forest I was in but also how wonderful this is you, know, you could just sit here all day and have kind of the same effect without the hunger because you could bring a packed lunch <laughs> i bet you don't miss the hunger though yeah no no and it's nothing that's the that's the other thing that i confuses me because when i came out everyone was like wow you're that was so sort of hard of you and brave to stay that long with so little food but i was like i've just got a button to press and i can get out of this and i feel like now i've experienced starvation i just have this concern for anyone who can't get out of that because it was the most horrendous thing I've ever gone through and it was towards the end where it really started to get me like it is it was horrendous like my whole experience was beautiful until that very like because you eventually your whole body starts to waste away and it's the feeling like you can't sleep because your muscles feel like ants are crawling all over them and you have these dreams of food like these really vivid crazy I had this repetitive it wasn't even a dream because I was awake I'd just go into these sort of visions I'd be doing the weekly shop and I'd be going up and down the Sainsbury's aisle like oh, I get the special cheese because it's a special occasion oh, and I'd go up and down and up and down the aisles hours I'd be doing it and then I'd get it home and then I'd cook it and then I'd be like Ugh. and uh, ow, because we had a little 
sat phone with the time on, so I always knew what the time was. For hours I'd have just sat there, not asleep, not awake, just in this vision. And then it just progressively got worse. So yeah, you just, you just can't move in the end. And I almost have this little guilt that I could just press a button and get out of that. Um, and it was just experience. for a TV show, you know. Yeah. Um, it was horrendous, the starvation. So yeah, so that's something constantly I think about, and that yeah, I don't want to promote that as a yeah. as an accomplishment, really. I suppose yeah. that's what I'm trying to say. It's just something that happened, and yeah, something that I would never wish upon anyone. Yeah, yeah. Well, okay. So back in back in London, and obviously with Women with Altitude. It's not gone away. No. You still have lots of plans for more yeah. expeditions. What is on the horizon and what would you love to do? With oh, it? there's so. I've got a list of like 150 women now. Obviously, I can't do them all. Um, so, I was trying to plan a cycling trip. So, this was Annie Londonderry. So, she was the first woman to cycle around the world. And I started to plan that one. Um, but it turned out actually it was going to be so expensive and it's probably going to take me more than like six months to plan. So, that one's kind of on the back burner, but next year I want to try and climb Mont Blanc in the same clothes as the first woman who did it in like 1880, I think she did it. So I think her outfit is still in the museum in Chamonix. Her, she made it herself because obviously women didn't have trousers then. So you had to sew all your own clothes. And it was this really heavy like woolen outfit. And she climbed it in that. Um, and then actually got the, her male guides to lift her up at the top so that she could have so she could say that she'd been higher than any man who'd ever climbed Mont Blanc. Oh, I love and her. And she was really cool. And, What's um, her name? Um, Henriette d'Angeville, in my French accent there. Um, so yeah, so I'm trying to find a company at the minute who will help me do the sort of climbing bit and you know, obviously try and take a female team to film it and I'd love to get sort of a female climber to help show me because I've never climbed a mountain like that and it's I think it's quite a hard one especially in the old equipment I think there's some technical bits so I want to try and find someone who can help train me um, to do it so yeah that's kind of the next plan oh that'd be one of those that'd be amazing <laughs> yeah. in your day-to-day -day, then how do you um, fit the outdoors in apart from Bassey Park it's hard at the minute because I work full time, it's all on a screen, um, and I am really trying to change. You know, the whole reason I sort of started Women with Altitude was to try and change my life. And I did sort of work part time last year, but just with everything so expensive now, I've had to go back. So I always try and go for runs like in the evenings, try and get into, especially in the summer, it's easier. And then the weekends, I just, I used to be a raver and I used to go out all the time. And now I'm just, I don't really drink much anymore. I just like just coming places like this on the weekend. Yeah. So, and that's kind of my, that gets me through. So yeah, I think I just, that's how I kind of do my green, get my green dose at the minute, but yeah. Well, it sounds like it could be an exciting few years for you, definitely. Yeah, um, looking back then, over the years you've done all your expeditions around the world and then in Canada last year how do you think the outdoors has impacted your life oh hugely hugely in the fact that I'm so much more confident and yeah when I started this whole journey like 13 years ago with my anxiety and all that like I was such a shell of a person but the outdoors has allowed me to become this and I would say I'm confident now like I wouldn't have been able to really sit here and talk to you in this in this confident manner I appear to be in you are yeah <laughs> and each day is different you know like it's all different but 
Yeah, I think the outdoors has just opened so much for me, but also I guess like the women who went before us as well, you know, these women went into the outdoors, they went off exploring and then that's how I've ended up doing all this as well. And obviously my childhood was spent in the outdoors, so that's really shaped me as who I am. And I think that's what's coming back to me now. So yeah, it's, it's really important and it's still, I'm obsessed with it. You know, it's what I want to do at the weekends and it's what I, what I always want to do. I sit behind my screen just wishing I was outside, even if it's raining. You know, I've learned to love the rain and I've learned to love all the different types of weather because I know they have a place and they're needed. Um, so, yeah, it's kind of my obsession, I would say now, the outdoors and, yeah, opening that up to everyone, I guess, is, is what I'm also trying to show. Elise, who are three people, other than the amazing women that you've followed in the footsteps of, who are three people who have inspired your outdoors adventures? So I've got, I mean, I work in PR and I've always been into journalism, so there's quite a lot of female journalists who are really brave and inspiring who um, I've always really looked up to. So there's one called Lindsay Adario, who's, she's actually a photographer, mainly a war photographer, and she wrote a book all about her life. Um, quite recently actually and she's just so brave and she goes to these situations where you know you just can't imagine going to and she just tells the story of women mostly um, all around the world in usually in really difficult situations but she tells it in such a beautiful gentle way that makes you care and you want to do something and I've always really looked up to her um, because again it's one of those industries where it's a lot of men but she's just been really groundbreaking in her work and she's still going strong now and she's really inspiring to listen to I know she's got some TED talks and things so yeah if anyone wants a bit of inspiration Lindsay Adario is, is incredible and then people I've met on my journey so there's Jangu who is my guide in India and she really opened my eyes because I mean, I knew it was really hard to find a female guide in the mountains in India, like it's a man's job. Women don't do that job there. And it took me months and months to find her. So I already knew she'd be this incredible woman sort of making, you know, making waves and doing her own thing. And she'd had quite a difficult life in actually becoming a mountain leader and being in the outdoors. She almost, not been shunned completely by society but people looked down on it but it was something that she really wanted to do and so she just went and did it and that's so brave and you know it's amazing and she's actually from the Lepcha community and they're an indigenous group of people that live in Sikkim and they've had a really really hard time as they've been moved out of their mountain homes into villages and there's a lot of poverty and she's now actually managed to build her homestay it was always a dream of hers to build a homestay and have the lecture women working there and cooking the food and have tourists come and stay there and support them so she's actually managed to do that and i know she had a really really hard time over covid running out of money halfway through trying so hard to get funding um, and it's amazing to see her now that she's actually done that and um, yeah, can't wait to go and visit her in this beautiful homestay in Sikkim. So if anyone's there, like near Darjeeling, it's kind of in between the two, um, it's there. And then, yeah, I think the other one's probably Nadia, my other guide in Iran, who again, it's, it's not necessarily a job that a lot of women do. And, you know, looking after tourists there, it comes with a lot of, I don't really know how to put it, sort of a lot of risks. 
Um, for example, if our headscarf fell down, we would be fine, but Nadia would get in trouble. So it's all these little things I sort of started noticing. Um, so to do that job, and she's so passionate about travel and the outdoors, um, is, is incredible and she's just so inspiring and so positive and you know confident and taught me so much while I was there just about everything about life for women out there about you know everything the food the mountains the stories just yeah incredible so yeah and I've met so many women actually through through Women With Attitude over the last five years like people like you and Emily who films my trips and you know is making waves in the filming world um, because she's she's a female DP and you know that's that's quite rare and quite often she'll she'll go to sets and people just assume she's just she's not the DP because DOP because she's she's a woman and things like that and I've just met so many inspiring amazing people through this project so yeah yeah they sound they sound brilliant yeah. and so nice yeah. to hear about Nadia and Django. We're going to get on to tips, survival tips. You obviously, <laughs> I mean, you know, um, you obviously yeah. had a lot of training before you went, but are there some tips that you picked up that it would be useful for other people to know about that you could share that actually kind of blew your mind and sort of helped yes. you see another side of the outdoors? Birch bark. Okay, tell me. Birch bark, fantastic stuff. Um, fire lighting with a, a flint and a, a ferry rod it's called. I don't even know the name of the bloody thing. <laughs> you can gather all the small bits of dry moss and whatever that you like, but that's gonna take you some time. Birch bark, you just try not to peel it off the tree because that's bad for the tree, but there'll be loads around the bottom. Yeah. It's so flaky, you just pull it off, rip it into tiny bits, and it just goes up. It goes up so quickly because it's full of flammable resin. And that is the reason my fire lighting was so good. I'd never successfully lit a fire until I was dropped because I was so nervous to do it in front of people the week before. I know that sounds insane, but my anxiety was yeah. through the roof. And everyone was there with their sort of making their fire sticks and woo, like making fires. And I just couldn't get it to work. So I was freaking out, but then I found the birch bark and easy. So you hadn't yeah. even known about the birch bark and its impact on fires until you got there? No. Yeah, someone showed me that the week before. Um, so yeah, that was amazing. Birch bark. And then what else? Always boil your water. Did you get sick at all? No, I was, I was no. fine. But I think it's because I boiled my water. I know a few people didn't. Um, but yeah, always boil it. And you can also filter it through your sock if you don't want the mud. I mean, I just went with the mud, <laughs> but you can do that. Um, I'm trying to think Give it a very I pungent learned. taste. I mean, I learned so much stuff. Um, I learned a lot about navigation and how to, basically trees. I don't know if you can see it on this tree, but you can find what's south and what's north because trees will have moss growing on the side where they get no sun. So on the north side? And then the south side where the sun is, it will be flat. So you can so always find your way That's by the trees. Isn't that amazing? Wow. Yeah. And quite often flowers will face the sun. So you'll know that's south. I know bluebells do it. 
And what about shelters? I know that there's a variety of different types of shelters people built, but you had a, well, describe your shelter. I went with an A-frame one because it was the simplest one I could see on YouTube <laughs> before I went in. And I used a tree and I just lent one end on that so I knew it was stable. And then the other end, you just have two sticks across. You have to be really careful. Um, falling widows, I think they're called. Or widow makers. Right, what's that? So it's when you haven't checked above you and you put your shelter, but there's actually a dead branch and it can fall on you. So obviously in big forest, there's a lot of those. So you have to make sure there's none of them above you. And also the tree that you're using to attach your shelter to is alive and well. Um, yeah, widow makers. Everyone was talking about them in training. I was like, I'm sorry, I don't know what you're talking about. And also about. it's a horrendous title for they'd it. Also, widow makers. Widow maker. And Ooh. they'd also call where we were going in the field a bit like in the army so i was getting a bit confused because i was like what do you mean in the field and then they'd also say dispatch instead of kill so when you're dispatching an animal in the field and i was like i don't know what you're talking about it's quite army language isn't it yes there's lots of things like that i had to sort of work out um, How long yeah. do you have to boil water for? I mean, it's just, just until, until it's, it boils. Just until it's rolling. A rolling boil. boil. Yeah, rolling boil. I've <laughs> yeah. had that one. Yeah. Yeah. Um, yeah these are all fascinating. Time. I'm loving it. I know. I did write down everything I learned, actually. Um, I also learned how to make a chimney for when it got cold because um, there was lots of clay in the river. So I built like my own fireplace, which I never saw myself doing, which was amazing. Um, and how not to burn your shelter down by having the chimney that comes out the back. Right. All these things you've learned are fantastic for the future, aren't they? Yeah, really good. Yeah, and it's been really nice when showing my niece and nephew like how to build shelters and things like that now. So you're a pretty cool aunt. Yeah, hope so. <laughs> um, Lise, it's been absolutely brilliant chatting yeah, to you. Yeah, no, thank you so thank much. You it's been so great. Much. And for bringing your wooden backpack along yeah. with the yak bell. There she is. I know. Um, no, it's been fascinating and you've just done some of the most extraordinary experiences and I really hope that you, you know, I'm sure there'll be many to come. Oh, it's thank a really you. exciting so. time. Yeah, no, yeah. thanks for having me. Or we'll continue our walk in yes. Bassey Park. Amazing. And you can show Let's me some more, some more little muddy footpaths in yes. here that are unknown. <laughs> <laughs> but thank you again. No, thank you. Thanks for listening to Elise's episode. Stick around for the calming minute of nature sounds I recorded recently. To see photos and watch snippets of my recording with Elise, head to Instagram at The Outdoors Fix. You'll also find Elise on Instagram at woman underscore with underscore altitude. Did you know that The Outdoors Fix is now also available as a book? It was my big project last year and it's packed full of 30 of my podcast guest stories tips and beautiful photographs to show you how you can get outdoors more and feel the benefits. And the Outdoors Fix book is available to buy through the link in the podcast show notes as well as on the Vertebrate Publishing website and in bookshops. Regular listeners of the Outdoors Fix will know that I end each episode with some sounds of nature. So now it's that time to take a short moment to relax and listen to the sea rolling onto my favourite beach in Devon, Blackpool Sands. I hope you enjoy it.